I didn't know if I was going to win, but I did know I wasn't going to stop. And that was the only thing that I felt okay committing to. Because when we talk about fuel, it was like when it got back down to it, the, the wall that my back was against was going home, a failure. And to me, I would have rather died. Alex, so grateful and honored for you to join me today because we spent so much time together. So it's only right that we actually sit across from each other face to face. Just for the audience sake, how, how have we spent time together, Danny? Dude, so many podcasts, so many YouTube videos, like a disgusting amount. Like, I'm like, are you kidding? Like, I've spent so much time with you. Because you're such an incredible communicator, because you are able to to have 10 years of knowledge into three a three-second clip. I'm just like, what is going on? And so I'm learning so much about business, about communication, about life, all from you. So thank you so much for being you. And, and that's why we spend so much time together, because I continually get value from the things you say. Well, I will do my very best to continue that trend, even though that is big shoes to, to fill. Well, I mean, it was so funny because one guy, I remember just not being able to talk to one guy because he's like, oh, Alex Hormozzi, I, I don't get any value from him. I'm like, all right, well, we're just not going to be friends. So <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's, but this interview is about you, not my spending time with you. And that is, I would love to start with a psychology assignment you had at 19 years old when okay. you had to pick someone who had a psychological disorder and tell the story of how they went down that path. Will you tell that story, yeah. please? Yeah, sure. So um, I, like many young men, had lots of angst and felt like the world was not fair and that I had not gotten what I, quote, deserved um, and that I thought that my parents could have done a, quote, better job of parenting me in general, and I resented them for that. Um, and so I had an intro to psychology course and the assignment was, as you said, pick somebody who had any pathology that we had cut, you know, studied over the whole semester and then write the story from their perspective of how that pathology might've developed. Right. And, um, what happened through the course of going through that assignment was not what I expected. Uh, because as I went through it, I picked my mother and she's, you know, she's been public about suffering from, you know, depression and ADD and things like that. Um, that I picked that, um, and in kind of inhabiting her shoes as an immigrant who came here, not speaking the language and having, you know, a Serbian father who was very authoritative, rightfully so we're talking 1950s, you know what I mean? Just different, different times. Um, and what her upbringing must have been like and having a split life between being an American at school and, you know, getting beat up for not being able to speak because back then it was almost uh, expected <laughs> and, and, and normalized to, to beat up the foreigners um, to, to, you know, then being the, the first person to, you know, first female class at, at Hopkins um, to be in that uh, as a doctor. And so thinking about that trajectory, I all of a sudden like realized the amount of pressures that she had put on externally, that other people had put on her externally throughout her whole life. And what happened was I felt like I understood 
And uh, Blaise Pascal, who's, you know, Pascal's Triangle, some people remember him. Uh, he was a mathematician and also a theologian. Um, he had this quote that I love, which is, to understand is to forgive. And I, I believe that you cannot both hate someone and understand them at the same time. And so, like, if I am very angry with someone, it, I, it, it's become a check for me where I'm like, oh, I must not understand something. Like, there's something about them or something about their experience that has made me not understand why they do what they do. And then you have the secondary statement of most people, if you were born with the same genetics and lived the same life as that person, you would see the world the same way as they do. And so carried within that is this very jarring idea that what if our viewpoint of the world is something that someone else hates entirely? And in their mind, we are wrong. And, but in their mind, like hard to even really get into that and like empathize with someone else's point of view to that degree. Um, but me going through that process has actually been one that I've repeated multiple times in my life when I was extremely angry with someone. And it's usually around loyalty or betrayals or things like that, that happened to all humans. Um, but when I started writing narratives around how someone experienced life that would make it reasonable that they would act or behave or believe what they believe, all of a sudden I felt like I understood. And so in a matter of a few weeks, what felt like a decade of hate and anger directed towards my mother, I went back from school to complete the story. And I remember she picked a fight about something. I can't remember what it was. And she, you know, we had, you have your normal routine of getting into a fight with someone. Right. And I just remember having no, like, emotional, I had no adrenaline spike. And I just felt very like, it felt like she'd hit a button, but the button wasn't hitting the normal trigger path that it was supposed to. And so I just remember looking at her and being like, I understand. And I'm sorry. And she, of course, you know, burst out into tears and it was, you know, a, you know, a huge emotional moment. But like, at the end of the day, it was like, I, I get it. Like you went through a lot and I'm sorry that you've had to deal with these demons. And it wasn't about me. And I think it's a lot of us, we have these like self-centered viewpoint because like we are the center of our own universes and therefore expect that everything that has ever happened is because of us, right? When we're children, we just expect hey, our parents got divorced. It must be my fault because like you think that way. It's like at a base level. And so realizing that it wasn't my fault necessarily that she felt that way. Um, and I guess in some way, giving her permission to just be who she was and co not constantly tell her why she shouldn't be this way or why Basically, her basic existence was insulting to me. Um, unpacking that um, made for a less contentious relationship because then the triggers were somewhat removed. Because if you understand why someone doesn't speak English and they keep looking at you and making noises at you, it's hard to get upset because you know they don't speak the language. And so even you can just replace like speaking English with speaking Alex hmm. and it works the same way. It's so that's, that's how that little intro to psychology assignment both changed my life with my mother, but then also helped me unpack anger driven situations that I had with other close people throughout the rest of my life. It's really interesting that your normal reaction to her wasn't the same and thus her reaction was different to you breaking down because it almost reminds me of how Layla, your wife, sometimes acts when you get angry she meets it with love and then you're like, oh, I see what this is, which is very fascinating to speak to human beings and our nature of when we meet fear with love in some respect, like the fear dissipates. So cool to like make that realization. 
I think it's just very hard to step out of the emotion in the moment yeah. and sidestep it and try and get outside or above whatever analogy you want to try and say like, okay, what do I not understand? And then it becomes a question to solve rather than a person to attack. Hmm. Have you, do you have any other uh, examples, frameworks, mental models that help you do that in a quicker way? I mean, with, with something that's like super deep, like anger, stuff like that. I mean, that was years and years. Like, I think it takes more, more work to do that. But in terms of frames around decreasing the stakes of a situation, I have lots of them. Um, so like, for example, one of them is, you know, if you zoom out far enough, you realize that you can't even see the earth. And so when I'm really upset about like Wi-Fi or something, I'm like, okay, maybe this isn't as big of a deal, you know? And if you, if you go back, uh, you know, let's go back 20 years, like what thing really bothered me 20 years ago? I probably can't even tell you what really bothered me 20 years ago. And so I can probably expect that what's bothering me today, I'll feel the same way 20 years from now. And so if it's not going to matter then, it probably shouldn't matter now. And a different frame would be like, okay, well, look at the ancient Xens. And when I say that, I mean like the Romans, the Babylonians, the Sumerians. And in 5,000 years, we will be the ancient Americans. Um, and we'll look back on this and we probably won't remember maybe even just the leaders' names, let alone the day-to-day strikes that we deal with. And again, if it's not going to matter then, then it's not going to matter now or shouldn't matter now. Um, another one is the frame of the veteran, which I like a lot, which I got from Dr. Kashi, which is imagine whatever this bad circumstance is happening once a day, Mult, sorry, mult, once an hour every day for the next year. Okay, so that's, you know, let's say it's 12 times a day times 365, a lot of times, right? Well, how would you feel on the 2000th time of that happening? Well, by that point, if you really thought about it, you'd be like, well, this is probably, you'd probably just be like, well, this is just how this is. This is how life is. And then you wouldn't be upset by it because you just adjusted your expectations, which meant if I could change my expectations on my 2000th time of my maids putting the spoons in the wrong drawer, then I can readjust. And I say that it's somewhat tongue in cheek, but you can replace that with whatever. You know what I mean? With somebody double parking you, with your boss being short with you. Like if your boss was always short with you once an hour, every hour of every day in a year, it wouldn't upset you because you would expect that. And so a lot of the, like, the angst that we experience, the anxiety, the sadness, the anger, whatever it is, it comes from the fact that our expectations are unmet. And so either we can demand that an uncaring universe changes to meet us or (laughs) we can change our expectations. Um, And I think that if it's you versus the universe, unlike what most of the Americana propaganda will put out, the universe will win. And so I think that that is one where you surrender to reality through acceptance and you say like, this is period. And it's not good or bad, which is probably the sixth frame, which is that we have this situation, let's say the spoons one, because it's ridiculous, right? Where I say, I have this problem, right? And so one of my favorite ways to solve a problem is to stop defining it as a problem to begin with. <laughs> and so uh, it's it's the least effortful way to actually solve stuff. It's like, is this really a problem? What if this was good? And here's a weird one, is that most short-term problems are actually long-term benefits, so think about this. It's like, you've probably heard the story of the, the man and the, the, the boy and the horse. So, you know, kid, kid, uh, kid gets a horse. Everyone says, this is amazing. Kid falls off the horse. 
people are like, oh, that's terrible because he broke his foot. And then Army comes to recruit, but he can't go to, to the war because his, his foot was broken. People said that was amazing. And so like you keep going through this cycle and that it's only within the time period that you measure. But over a long period of time, we don't know whether the thing was, quote, good or bad. And if we don't know if something's going to be good or bad, then why even bother ascribing a label to it? Because the only thing that we actually know is that it happened. And so I see it a lot like the weather where you say like people will ascribe a situation like sunny days or rainy days. And they say sunny days like they're good days and rainy days like they're bad days. But if you're in a drought, rainy day comes from heaven and, a, and another sunny day comes from hell. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side, if you have a wedding the next day, a rainy day sounds horrible and a sunny day sounds amazing. And the crazy thing is that there's two people praying for the same thing at the same time. One's going to be upset and the other person isn't. And I remember when early you know, dealings with Christianity and I was thinking about just having a God, I remember praying for good weather because I had some outdoor event. And then I thought to myself, man, there's a farmer who's really praying for rain right now. And I was like, shit, maybe this is flawed. Not to say that praying in general is flawed, but just that construct of this, it being my way is therefore good. Hmm. And I think getting used to not getting my way, comma, and saying that that's okay, has been one of the big psychological hacks that I've had in my life that have decreased my anxiety levels and my anger levels around responding to stimuli that I wouldn't at the onset say was what I wanted because I might not know. And maybe today's rainy day is tomorrow's sunny day and maybe sun is neither good nor bad. It just is. It's beautiful. It, what I love so much about what you talk about is like, there's a surrender there to the moment, whatever it is, but that doesn't negate hard work either. And, and a huge part of who you are and what you present is like, you just need to do more reps for the thing. So it's like, maybe you want it to be your way, just do more of the thing. And so, I mean, I think uh, the best example to me that really hit it home was with the the flyers on the cars. So could you tell that story for people who who might not know? Yeah. So um, I had a mentor way back when, when I was starting my gyms and he was like, yeah, we do flyers. Uh, That's how we get customers. I was like, okay, so I'll do some of those. You say you should try that. So you know, print out 300 flyers and, you know, advertising exp- was expensive and I was broke. And so 300 was, was the appropriate amount of advertising that I could stomach. And so we put out 300 flyers and I waited. And then the next day I got a call. I was really excited. And, uh, as soon as I pick up the phone, I was like, Oh, Hey, and it's like, I got one of your flyers. I was so excited. And, uh, he says, yeah, you, uh, dinged my Mercedes. And I just immediately panicked and hung up the phone. I didn't even say anything. Thankfully, he never called back, but that was the only call I got from my 300 flyers. And so I called the, the, the mentor back and I was like, Hey, you, uh, you told me to do that, you know, think, you know, a decade plus ago, uh, and way more entitlement. I was like, Hey, you told me this was going to work. Right. And, uh, and I'm, and, and he didn't even respond to that. He was like, well, how many did you, how many did you put out for your test size? And I was like, uh, what do you mean by test size? He's like, well, what was the first batch that you tested on so that you could then scale it? And I was like, well, I mean, I put out 300 in total and he just started laughing. And I was like, why you? I'm like, I'm having this very serious moment. You know what I mean? I was like, what are you laughing at? He's like, hard to know if anything works with 300. <laughs> He's like, well, we test with 5,000. He's like, and then if we get, a half a percent back. He's like, then we're okay. 1%. I'm scaling to the moon. One and a half. He's like, I'm singing, singing praises. He's like, if you had a half percent on that, he's like, you'd get one and a half people. He's like, and that's tough to see with 300. Can't really know if anything's working. 
And I remember thinking that moment, like, I might have been doing the right thing, but I was not doing nearly enough of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of early on. And like, I think that story can apply to a lot of things to early entrepreneurship. It's like, we can get disheartened by our first month of making content that we haven't made money yet from it. But it's like, not that you're doing the wrong thing. You just might not have been doing it either a long enough or enough of it, which time is really just also a proxy for doing enough of it. And so I, and I think what a lot of people don't get, myself included, when I was earlier starting is people don't get the amount of volume that it takes to be successful, right? Like I actually, I'll tell you, I had a different conversation the other day. So good friend of mine, very successful and um, like to the, to the B level successful, right? And so he's, he had a conversation with me. He's trying, he's wanted to start building a personal brand just because he wants to give back. And um, he was like, dude, why? Um, he's like, your stuff just crushes compared to mine. Like, what am I doing wrong here? And I gave him a couple tips and then he was like, well, how much content are you guys putting out a week? And I was like, I think we're at like 350 pieces a week. And he just like, he looked at me and he was like, thank you for resetting my minimum standard. And because he's an experienced entrepreneur. And so he could immediately translate that into what he needed to hear because he was like, me with my one a day. He's like, he's like, I think it's significantly less reasonable that I expect to have your outcome with, with one thirtieth of the level of volume that you're putting out. But here's the context is that back to that flyer story, he was saying 5,000. And then he said he would go to 5,000 per day after that, mm-hmm. meaning that in 30 days, he put out 150,000 flyers. In that same 30 days, I put out 300, right? So I was, I was doing one five times, whatever, five times 15, oh, one 1,500th divided by one forty five hundredth of the level of effort that he was. And so a lot of times people think in doubles and triples when it's the level of effort, but it, just like the example I gave with the guy who's successful already, it wasn't him doing twice the work. He needed to do like 30 times the work to get that level of outcome. And I will tell you this is that across Super successful people, independent of how they advertise, and this is just specific to advertising, but it, it works with product iteration. It works with editing for videos. If you know two editors, I can imagine I'm looking at my own my own uh, chief of brand behind me. Um, if you have two editors and you say, "Hey, how much time did you put into this video?" The new guy says, "Oh, I put a ton of time into this video. I put like two hours into this." And the experienced editor laughs and he's like, "So that was the first round of edits that you did?" And they were like, "No, that was like the whole thing." And he's like, "Well." hard to edit anything in two hours, right? In terms of like, if you had a video, right? And so the, 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 the huge discrepancy between someone coming in who's new and someone who's experienced in terms of how much work they expect to do to get an outcome is the difference between mediocre and world-class. And like the context here, and I'll give you, I'm going to keep giving examples because I think it'll maybe drive it home. But like my book, the book that's coming out, I put 2000 hours personally into that book. So six hours a day for almost two years. Every first six hours of every day was writing and rewriting and rewriting. I wrote 19 drafts of the book before it will now come out. Right. And people see the last book and that book sells 25,000 copies a month with word of mouth alone. There's no paid ads. It just, and it grows more every month, meaning people who buy the book, read the book, tell more than one person about the book and it keeps growing. And so I have a bunch of other friends who are business people who are like, Oh, I'll go write a book. And I, they'll text me and they're like, dude, I'm already halfway through. Started two weeks ago. I don't, I don't even need to know. I can tell you right now, the book's not going to be good because like nothing exceptional takes little time. Like great, 
Great work takes great struggle. Because if it were easy, then it means it's low-hanging fruit. And if it's low-hanging fruit, other people have already done it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the high fruit that take the ladder, that take the climbing, that take getting cut by thistles and leaves and whatever, that's still there for the picking. And the thing is, is that like most of the big wins in life come from the hard to attain fruit. And the key to most of those treasure chests is actually right in front of most people. It's just that there's just a time clock on the treasure chest. The key's sitting on top of it. It says, wait five years, and then you can unlock. It's in plain sight. It's not a secret. It's just the thing that makes it hard is not the complexity, it's the consistency. Mm-hmm. How do you know when something like the book is, is ready to go? After 19 drafts, why not 20? Why not 27? Why not 127? Because at that point, there was nothing else that I could think of that I could do to improve it. Mm-hmm. So most people will ship something and be like, well, because uh, I'll, like, I'll give you the editing example. So someone says this video, I just edited it. And I say, cool. If I give you two more hours, what would you do? And they'd be like, well, I'd probably do this better. I'd probably do this better. I'd probably do this better. I'd be like, okay, do that. Come back. Come back in two hours. I'd be like, okay. If I give you two more hours, what would you do? Well, I would probably do this, this, and this. Okay, cool. They come back. Now, here's the trick one. If I give you 20 hours, what would you do? Well, shit, I would probably restructure the story entirely to make it really flow, not just like the surface level edits, but I'd really structure, like really just rearrange the entire thing to make it like way better. Okay, do that. And then that clip gets a million views. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, there's sure, there's duct tape and, and there's lipstick that you can put on stuff, but like, why go from version 18 to version 19, Right. Because probably version 18, given the audience I've had, will probably would probably still be a bestseller, right? But in my opinion, the difference between great and world-class is, is so much more effort on the front end, but so much more output on the back end. Meaning, I could spend half as much time on this book, right? And I'd probably sell close to the amount of books that I'll probably sell, like from the event and all that stuff. Like people will buy it, Right. But it's the second wave that won't happen. It's people will say this book was good, but they won't be, they won't, it won't blow their minds, right? Because it'll have just been like enough stuff that wasn't totally broken down all the way. The hard work of digesting a concept that takes four days to break down one paragraph. Like my team laughed about this. Actually, my CEO of Gym Launch, um, I, I sent him, there's a, there's a, there's one page in the book that's special. I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. All right. And I, um, and I sent him a draft of that page and, uh, I read it to him out loud and offhandedly, I was like, yeah, I've put, I've, I've spent the last 20 hours on this over the last two days on this one page. And he didn't say anything about it, but he then made a clip about that because, because to me, that's how long it took me to write every page. If you do the math, like I spent 10 hours basically on every single page in the book. And so for him, he was like, Thank you for resetting my minimum standard. And so a lot of times, I think if you looked at the book and what it'll probably do afterwards, um, it, it seems significantly, and Michelangelo, is used to, this is he used to say, my buddy Michelangelo, uh, he said, if people saw how much work I put into my art, they wouldn't think it's as exceptional as it is. And so a lot of the exceptionalism is that people see the output, not the input. And so people said, if I said, hey, I spent 2,000 hours on this book, 
Maybe it's not that exceptional when you think about it like that, right? But it is exceptional compared to people who put 50 or 100. And so if I put 20 times the work into a book and it becomes three times better than other books, my output to input ratio on the front end is way worse than theirs. But I would rather spend two years building an exceptional product and then let all the customers of that book spend the rest of their lives promoting it for me than spend two months making a decent book and then have to spend the rest of my life promoting it because no one else wants to do it for me. Yeah. It, it reminds me of how Steve Jobs thought of the iPhone. You're thinking about the same thing for writing a book, which yeah. to me is a revolutionary concept, but makes sense. Another thing that I, I love about what you discuss is like how your own bar for excellence continues to rise year over year. How what you would have accepted as great work a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago was much lower. And that gave me some peace for some reason. Could, could you talk a little bit about that? The more you do, the more you realize you can do. And so it's like you prove to yourself in some way that you get a positive reinforcement loop that like if I spend an extra 50% longer on this, I get even more positive feedback. And so in some ways you could say that I've just become addicted to that loop, which is that the more obsessive I become about anything, the more positive feedback I get on a longer time horizon. And that's the part that most people struggle with, which is like, think about this for a second. I spent two years writing and editing this book. Years. And it could also flop, <laughs> right? It could. You never know. It could flop. No, right? I'm going to be tweeting it every second. It won't flop. <laughs> but it it could flop. But most, and I think this is like, this is a muscle, it's a skill, right? That you develop over time. And so I don't, th if, if you had asked me 10 years ago, there's no way. And I, and I mean this, this isn't me like trying to, trying to posture on this. Like there is no way. And I can say this confidently that I would wait for two years for anything. Hmm. I wouldn't have waited two years for anything. Just, I, I couldn't do it. There's no way I could do it. And so, you know, the marshmallow test that people talk about with the kid, one marshmallow, two marshmallows, right? Well, what's interesting about that is that I would love like a third test of this. And maybe somebody can send it to me if they've, if they've done this. But it's how long can you make the kid wait for the marshmallow? Because we have a binary of, okay, wait 15 minutes or wait 30 minutes. And if they eat the, the marshmallow in the 30, they're not long-term thinkers. And if or they have some level of impulse control. And if they wait 30 minutes, they get, they get the second marshmallow. But what if you said you have to wait a day to get the second marshmallow? What if they said you have to wait a month to get the second marshmallow? How many kids wait now? And it's certain at some point the kid starves to death. So like the, the analogy breaks, right? Or it's no longer, you know, they'll eat their foot off. But the idea, but like you can still take the concept and apply it, which is I can, I can almost guarantee that the kid that can wait a month to get the second marshmallow will win no matter what, whatever he does. And it's because the amount of input that they're willing to do before getting a result far exceeds everyone else's. You said before that you know you couldn't it would be impossible for you to wait two years for anything ten years ago. That yeah. implies that you were able to increase the amount of time that it you were you became more of a long term thinker over time. How can somebody listening to this become more yeah. of a long term thinker intentionally? You have to figure out what to do in the meantime. Like patience isn't actually active, and this is a big finding for me was that people are like be patient. It's a terrible directive. Mm -hmm. 
because no one knows what to do when you say be patient. Right now, I'm being patient for every other thing in my entire life except for this podcast. Because time is elapsing and other things are going in progress. I have long-term 10-year goals that right now I'm being patient for by being on this podcast with you. And so I think what a lot of people need to do is figure out the games they need to play in the meantime. And so experts at things don't really have more impulse control. I think it's a fallacy. They figure out more ways to win in the meantime. So if you've been on a, on a treadmill and, and, and you see 30 minutes, right? And then you, and then you're like, you, you get five minutes in and you're like, okay, only five more five minute chunks, right? That is in a nutshell, what an expert does when they approach a project. They don't try and think I'm going to run 26 miles, right? If they're running the marathon, they say, how do I break this into a chunk that I can manage? Right. And then what they do is they create more ways to win. And so in those two years, it wasn't like I just sat and suffered for two years and then the book's going to come out, right? I was, I would have many, many victories along the way that would happen. Like, oh, we just destructed this whole, this chapter. I just rewrote it again and it's killer. Or I just got this beautiful visual that just completely explains this thing with three, three shapes. And it just, you know, it, it explains the whole concept, right? And so you get these little mini reinforcers and then you have the long loop of reinforcement that is for me that I have now learned over and over again is that the longer the more time I put into something, not necessarily longer, but the more time I put into something, the, the fact that time elapses is secondary. The more time I put into something, the better it is. And what happens too is when you're built, working on projects, you're working on anything is that if you work on it over a longer period of time, you have more time for creative solutions to come to you to the problems that you're thinking through. Like the best launch I ever did in, in my life so far uh, was actually of Prestige Labs, my supplement company. And it was because we actually planned it for a year. Mm-hmm. Other companies and other projects, I, because I was impatient, was like, let's do this in 12 weeks, right? And I hear, and I can quote the entrepreneurs, you got to break shit and move. You got to, you know what I mean? I, I, I do all that. But you know what worked really well? When we had thought through every contingency and every scenario and we were completely staffed up and we had done a beta test and we had done a five times bigger beta test and we had ran processing through, we made sure payouts were on time. We made sure we had inventory tracking that was automated. We made sure that we had the right ratio between customer you know, service people and the number of tickets that were going to get bought. We knew we had supply chain lined up so that we could ramp up at a 10x or 20x month over month type of scaling because we we're going to thousands of locations, right? Like, that doesn't happen in a week. And so like great, great triumph takes great sacrifice. Just is what it is. Like there's a quote um, in uh, B.F. Skinner, who's a behavioral psychologist, and he starts one of his books. He says, many variables exist and therefore many variables must be studied. Hmm. And it's just about the context of human behavior. And so a lot of people want to make these idioms or these truisms that are like, One plus one equals two. It's like, but human behavior has a lot of variables. And so everyone wants to have the shortcut. And he just was like, many variables must be studied. Hmm. It's just like, you can't shortcut the work. The work has to be done. And so I think kind of like that level of acceptance to go full circle with what we were talking about earlier is like, I, we have this expectation that we want this amazing big outcome and we aren't willing to put in the level of work required to make that outcome. And so interesting, like corollary on this is like, if you want a double, like if you want a double output outcome, you might have to work five times harder. And if you want like a triple output, you might have to work 10 times harder. And you're like, wait, there's, there's an inefficiency there. And it's like, the answer is yes, but there's also an asymptote on the other side. So let me give you an example. So if I said Olympic sprinting, right? These guys trained for four years to shave a 10th of a second off their runtime. 
And let's say one guy works twice as hard as everybody else. And he just gets one-tenth of a second faster than the second-place guy, right? So he wins the gold. The other guy wins the silver. What is the material difference between first and second? Everything. Everything. And so even though the results, there's a diminishing return of the results that you get from the input that you put in in terms of work, there's an outsized return on each diminishing increment of improvement. Because teaching a high school kid how to run with good form, they probably in one training session will make more improvements on their running than an Olympic caliber runner will make in the last four years of their running. But which one matters more? The last four years, right? And so I see the same thing there. It's like if I want to create or write one of the best business books of all time that people will put into the canon, which is my ultimate goal, like my team knows that it's like when people make the list of like, these are the five books you have to read. I want all of them to be books that I've, that I've written, not because it's a me thing, but just because I want that to be the level of quality that, that we put out. Right. And in order for that to happen, I might have to run for four years every single day to get this much better. But so that the first book, not the third book that someone says is the book that I wrote. Hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. What, have you learned about yourself from writing this most recent book? The work needs doing. It's just like, there's no way around it. Like it just has to be confronted. And I think it just like, it just comes down to that is you just have to confront the work. And a lot of people put a lot of extra things between them and the work that they try and romanticize, they try and create superstitions around it. They have all these fancy rain dances that they do. But like at the end of the day, the work doesn't care who you are. It just cares that it gets done. And I think in some way, that's one of the great equalizers about product is that like in a lot of ways, and this will probably be triggering to some people, but like it doesn't matter who you are. Like in in a fitness example, 500 pounds is 500 pounds. It doesn't care who you are. Like anyone like Arthur can pull the sword from the stone if you're strong enough. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like there's a level of work that has to get put in to learn how to run ads level of work that has to get put in to learn how to, to do cold calls, a level of work that has to get put in to learn how to be patient when someone's angry with you, right. Or how to run a team or how to stick your projects in a sauna or whatever it is. Right. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you're old, you're young, you're male, you're female, you're black, white, Asian, whatever, right? It just needs doing. And I think that a lot of people waste a lot of time not starting. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've told this analogy before. We've probably heard it, but I'll say for your audience. Um, there's a study. There's probably a lot of studies been done on this, but you can become proficient in any skill in about 20 hours. So playing the piano, you know, riding a bike, whatever it is, 20 hours of concentrated effort gets you proficient. It's the largest gain in skill improvement is 20 hours of concentrated effort. The problem is, is that people will wait a decade to start the first hour. And so you'd be amazed at how much progress you can make if you cut down the time between when you acknowledge the work and when you start doing the work. And I think that over time in my career, what has happened is just that my my delay between when I realize I need to do something and when I start doing it has just shrunk. So that I can get to the gain in proficiency that much faster. And then if you think about that over 10 years, right, where one guy does nothing and then he starts 
and another guy does 20 hours and 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 20 hours, by the end of that decade, they're not even recognizable. They're not even the same, they're not even the same stratosphere. Yeah. When you think about a good writer or a great writer, an unstoppable writer, what comes to mind and what separates the amazing writers versus everyone else other than the work? Saying the work, people do thousand, yeah. put 2,000 hours into a book. What sure. makes for an unstoppable, incredible writer? I don't think there is something else. I'll, I'll qualify this, which is that the work needs feedback. So you gain proficiency with expert eyes giving you feedback on the work you do. Because if I, I'll give you the content example. If I post a short every day for, for 10 years and I don't change what I'm doing and I just post the same thing, I might not make any progress. And I know people who've been who've done, made content for 10 years and they have the same size following, right? Mm-hmm. Because they don't learn, they don't improve. Like, I'm going to rewind real quick on this, is that the work is required for you, not for the output. Somebody who naturally gets it on the first try, who really just understands it. And this is an easy example. If, 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 if Mr. Beast's account got canceled tomorrow, he can start another one and get it to millions and millions of followers because he has the skill. And so it's not that the output requires him to go work for five years in order to build the following. His skill required him to work for five years to get the skill but then the output does the work after that. And so like the, the time delay that people talk about, like myself included when I'm trying, like this is where nuance of advice comes in, right? Where it's like, I tell people, hey, I want you to do 100 reps every day. I don't want you to do the same 100 reps every day. I want you to get better with all the reps. And if you haven't looked at the end of the day and said, what could I do better? How could I improve? And if you don't have somebody on the outside eyes being like, hey, you stumbled here on this call. Or hey, when they said this, let's drill this. Let's, let's do this a couple of times. That's how you get better. Right. And so you have to be willing to do the work and get the feedback to improve. Like the work works on you more than you work on it. And I think that's the piece that people miss. Like my prescription, like of doctor money, um, of, of working is for the, for the person's skills, not because I care about the fact that you made 10,000 phone calls. I care about the fact that you got better 10,000 times. How many sales calls do you think you've been on in your life? I've closed over 4,000. Oh my God. So what? At what close rate? Well, mine were in person before the days of the telephone. Not really. But like I, I was, I had all my sales, almost all my sales were in person, but so, from, a, from a volume perspective. Do you think that uh, that is a major contributor for why you are such a good communicator, an incredible communicator, I would say? I think it's part of it. I think it's part of it. Um, but, you know, it's funny. A, a friend of mine saw some of my old gym launch content. And they were like, dude, have you like taken speech lessons? <laughs> They're like, I saw an interview with you like in your garage and you were like, oh, yeah, I mean, I don't know, just do shit and make money and go away if you don't want to work, whatever. And, um, and so, and so, and at that point, I'd already closed 4,000 sales, right? Interesting. But I'll give you something that, that will probably just, you know, discourage some people. I don't think that the sales skill that I had necessarily translated into the content skill. I had to get, 4,000 reps here. And so when I say that we make 350 pieces of content every week, I have a lot of reps. And here's the beautiful part about content, in my opinion, is that you get such fast feedback cycles. You can immediately see what happens and what worked and what didn't, right? And then you can learn, you can get better. And not to get into the nuances of like, don't be an algorithm chaser and things like that. But at least from a skill perspective, 
Content is one of those games that you can get really good at really quickly. Sales, you have really fast feedback cycles. You know if the person buys, you can see if they change their body language, whatever. Like, ooh, I shouldn't say that next time. Or, ooh, that worked. Like, I'll say that again, right? Um, where the problem actually gets in in this learning cycle, sometimes you learn the, the wrong things. Sometimes the person was ready to buy because their friend Sandy preferred them. And then you do something fancy and then she says yes. And it wasn't because of you. She, you, she bought despite you, right? And so then you get false data. And this is where get, like skill acquisition gets really interesting. Um but overall, I think the reason that I became, quote, more articulate is because I have just committed time to doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that seems to be a recurring theme. Yeah, what? I have six years of podcasts. Yeah. The first four years that like I, I just looked at a graph at uh, like yesterday, I looked at a graph and the day that we sold Gym Launch um, is like the de- it's it's like a straight line. Because I stopped, so I started taking all the excess attention that I had from going to the business and taking a portion of that and being like, I'm going to learn this skill. And so it's straight line grew after that. But it was like four years of flat-ish nothing. Because realistically, I don't think I took any feedback from my podcast. I just consistently made the podcast. So there's an element there where I'm like, I like I say this and I'm not saying it to preach. I'm saying it because I lived it. Right. Like I made a podcast for four years and didn't grow. Right. I did like 400 episodes before it actually like started growing. I got the same 2000 people who listened every month. That's monthly listens, not daily monthly listens of 2000. Right. And then I was like, I'm going to try and learn this. And then I started trying to learn it and trying to get better. Yeah. And one of your core skills is being a good learner, I feel as well. So. This is this this is a good. I appreciate that, and but I'm going to segue into this for the audience. Is that I think there are skills like, and there are meta skills. So meta skills are skills that help you learn skills, right? And so, like being a good writer is a meta skill for communication in general. So if I'm a good writer, I'll be good at writing copy. I'll be good at writing emails. I'll be good at writing captions. I'll be good at writing, scripting tweets. I'll be good at making short. Like all of those come from one skill, but it's a meta skill, right? If you're good at reading. It's like, well, then I can absorb a lot of information. So I can then learn how to write copy. I can learn how to make ads. I can learn how to all of those things faster. And so in my opinion, the education system should only be on meta skills so that you become like a, a, a stem cell for knowledge. Is that how do we get the person so that they can become anything, right? Like we don't need to teach 17th century Aztec literature. What we should do is teach people how to learn and then let them learn whatever they want to learn. Because people all get interested in something and just, and then when they have the skills, then they can get good at it and then they can make a living doing it. Okay. A hundred million dollar learner. What are some of the chapters here? Learn, <laughs> um, repeat successful actions. Get feedback from people who are further ahead than you. Uh, expand the time horizon that you measure your output on, but shrink the time horizon that you measure your inputs on. So measure what you do today faster, but measure what happens from what you did today longer. Hmm. That's it. Like find people ahead of you, figure out what they did if that's what you want to learn. Do the inputs and measure them quickly, short-term, get feedback, and then don't, and then wait a long time until you get the outcome that you want. But I would say instead of optimizing for the outcome, I optimize for progress. And so a lot of my team knows this. Is that like I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick story. So when I got into, when I started to start making content, I hired a, a YouTube agency or whatever, because I didn't know anything about any of this stuff, right? Like nothing. It's kind of, it's funny because people were like, asked me to talk about content. And like, I didn't do this two years ago. Um, and so 
anyways, I get on the phone and I said, hey, just so you know, I'm committed to doing this for 10 years. And he was like, what? I was like, yeah. I was like, I will, I will follow the system that you outline for 10 years before I need to see an ROI. And he was like, that is the weirdest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. He's like, and, and, and that was the first conversation. It was fine or whatever. Right. And I told him after that, I was like, to be clear, I was like, I want to make progress. I want to see that our videos are doing better you know, month over month over month in general, not this video to the next video, but month over month, I want to see that like, if I'm putting attention to this, that it, we're getting better. That's all I want to see. And so six months in, things started really cranking, right? And I think nine months in, I ended up saying, I'm going to bring the whole team in house. And, and we had an amicable, amicable parting, right? And on the last call that I had with him, he said, I just want to share something with you that has changed my life. And I was like, what? <laughs> he said, that first call, he said, I have never had anyone in my entire life, friends, family, mentors ever talk to me about a 10 year time horizon for anything. He's like, every client I sign up is like, I need to ROI in 90 days or I'm not going to pay you. Or, or like, if this doesn't make me money in a month, like I'm out. Right. And he's like, and it completely shifted the way that I have approached my business, just seeing how you approached YouTube. And I have been in the business game longer than I've been in the content game. And so some of those lessons have carried over for me. And so I'm like, of course, it's going to take a while. I'm competing against, you know, Mr. Beast. And I'm not saying competing against him. He's, he's, he's amazing, right? But like, I'm competing against guys who've been doing it for 10 years. Of course, they're better than I am. Why would I expect to beat those guys, right? But I'd like to be better in a month or two than I am now. And as long as I have a path towards that, I'm satisfied. And I will continue on that path because if I can draw the line between now and 20 years from now, then it is a good outcome. And I think that that being able to draw the line and say, like, I just want to see that I'm getting better. That's all that people, in my opinion, should focus on. Now, if you're not getting better and you're doing the inputs and you're putting the real time into the thing, then it means you need somebody to give you better feedback. Hmm. Because you don't like if you don't know why you're not not doing better. Like if I say, hey, editor make this video better. And they're like, I don't know what to do. That's when you need someone to say like, here's six things that you can do better. And then they're like, oh, so you need the awareness. You need someone to be able to get to bridge that knowledge gap so that then you can bridge the effort gap. Mm. When was the first time you realized the importance of putting in progress leading to a long-term result? I mean, what comes to mind for me initially is the, the gym teacher who took you under his wing with lifting weights, but yeah. is this, is there something else that comes to mind for you? I, I, if I, if I gave you an answer, I'd be making it up. Mm -hmm. I think I've always measured progress. You know, I just want to know I'm getting better. Yeah. Makes sense. W which of your earliest jobs are playing the biggest role in your current day to day? <sighs> I mean, realistically, none of them. <laughs> um, like, you know what I mean? Like I, I cherish my time as a blended tender at Smoothie King um, and, you know, as a, as an Orthodox Jewish caterer um, and as a, you know, fur coat brusher in a warehouse. But, you know, none of those things realistically taught me any skills. Now, I learned through observation to see what some of them were doing. But I would honestly, when I tell stories about even the fur coat dealer, some of those things I actually had to learn business later and then retroactively looked back at that situation was like, oh, that's what they were doing. Like, I didn't even have the context to make the judgment at the time. 
And like, I remember like in the Smoothie King, I was like, we would do the sale tally at the end of the day. And it was like $2,000, $3,000 every day. And it never even registered for me. Like, it, like I never even thought of it as money. It was just like the number. And there was a certain amount that I had to write that was cash. And I put that in the safe. And then a certain amount that I was like credit cards. And you put it in, you to tally it up with the cup count or whatever at the end of the day. And I, and, but like, I didn't think about that being a million dollar business or what the revenue run rate was or what the margins were. Like, I didn't think about any of that stuff. I was just trying to, I was just trying to like make smoothies. And so I'll, 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 I'll do a tiny segue for, for the audience here is that like, I, I reject the concept of being a born entrepreneur. I think that we get better at things that we are reinforced for doing, period. And the natural born entrepreneurs are just typically people who got reinforced for doing entrepreneurial type behaviors earlier. So like I was a very security driven person for most of my life. So like I just had jobs and then I went to college and then I got a white collar job that had prestige around it. And the, the most terrifying thing in the entire world for me was quitting that job. It took me six months to quit a job and I was 22 or 23 and I had $50,000 saved up and I was petrified. And to this day, it was still the most afraid I've ever been in my entire life was quitting that job, which is ridiculous to me now in retrospect. But it was because I had never been rewarded for that. So it was such a huge change in behavior for me from following the trodden path because I'd been rewarded over and over and over and over and over and over and over again for doing what I was told. Makes sense. So I think in some ways, the guys who did fail out of school and things like that and then became entrepreneurs, it's like, well, they never got rewarded for following the directions. I had been rewarded for following the directions, which is why it was so much harder for me to quit. In that story about quitting, it's like, you were acting, were you acting in fear or faith in that situation? And <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Could you also talk about the distinction between shifting your world from fear yeah. to faith? So I will say that I did not have fear and anger or what drove me to take action. Like I didn't have a lot of faith. I had a lot of anger and that's what I had. And so that's what I used. And it took me years, like years, not like a year, like six to like, I would say even switch to not always being driven by anger and trying to prove people wrong and make the point that I was right. You know what I mean? Um, and I wouldn't say that I'm purely faith driven now. I would say that I have elements of it. Um, and so I just, I just don't know if it's a binary for me. I would just say that over time, I have less of that and I have more of some other stuff. Like I enjoy what I do now a lot. And so I do a lot of it. And so, you know, trying to find what the fuel is now, I don't think about it much. I just do the things that I enjoy and that I've been rewarded for doing in the past. And so like I work hard on things because the harder I work on things, the better things tend to work out for me. And so the projects that I work on now, I have a way longer time horizon than I did. Like gym launch was just like, I mean, I told Layla when we started making like, I'll say crazy money in quotes here, but we were taking home like a million a month-ish and we're in our 20s. Like, like I didn't think it was going to last. So I was like, we need to live so cheap and take every dollar we possibly can. And I told her as soon as it started working, I was like, we have 18 months. I told her, I sat her down. I was like, we have 18 months before this is going to not work. So like, we need to just make this work. And here, Jim launches six years later, still crushing it. You know what I mean? But like, I didn't know that. Right. And so there was no faith. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> like people were like, what was the vision of gym launch? I was like, the vision was don't be broke. Like that was it. That was the whole vision. And so I think what happens is like, 
you have to get your head above water so that you can even breathe and like look around. But like if it's kind of like the air mass scenario, which is overused, but like if you're looking at how you're going to pay rent and how you're going to make payroll and all that stuff, like it's very hard to make strategic decisions. Like in some ways it's like, I do, I do like having the idea of some entrepreneurs who have saved up enough from a job or career that like, they're not worried about shelter. They're not worried about food. So they can actually think on a 10 year time horizon. Like it's easy for me to stand here and be like, guys, be more long-term thinking, except you're like, well, rent's fucking due tomorrow. So what do I do now? Right. And like the reality is you decrease your liabilities. You decrease all of the things that stress you out. And so if the things that stress you out are the things that you spend money on a regular basis, then it's like decrease those to the absolute greatest degree possible so that you're not in fight or flight every month so that you can breathe and then you can actually make the better decisions. Because like if you're in that state, it's it's so hard to win because other people who are competing against you aren't there. You're sleeping on the, the gym floor where you're fully in that state. I assume. Yeah. So take me through that scenario and also like wanting to be seen as the person who was sleeping on the gym floor. So I, that was not external. So that was more, okay. So I, I'll unpack this. So for everyone who's listening, so I, um, I quit my job, drove across the country, uh, mentored with a guy for three months, then opened, uh, uh, my own gym and I didn't have enough money for two rents. My rent was $5,000 a month, which, I was 20, like it was all the, I couldn't even, I mean, it was insane. Like it was 5,000. I was like, that, that was more than, that was like my salary. You know what I mean? I was like, what am I going to live on for everything else? Right. And so I, I moved out of the place that I was at, which was just a spare bedroom. Um, and I slept at the gym and I remember like, you know, I would read the Instagram motivation manifesto when it was just like stock images of girls that were like, chase your dreams, you know, like whatever. And I'd be like, like, you know, uh, <laughs> and the thing is, is that like, I had a very different idea of what that suffering would feel like, right? Like it was very praised and lauded, L-A-U-D-E-D, um, by Instagram and the world and Motivation Manifesto. But like when I was alone in a city I didn't know, in a dark warehouse that was underneath of a parking garage, and people would drive over the metal cracks in the, in the, in the concrete on the ceiling, six, seven times a night. And he was like, doosh, doosh, and it was like this, it was like this gunshot. And there'd be kids my age partying on the roof illegally. And I'm trying to like wake up at four o'clock in the morning to, to do the first sessions. Like it wasn't fun. Like there was, there was no, like, like the Rocky cutscene lasts 30 seconds in the movie and lasts five years in your life. It's powerful. That's powerful. And so you have to find ways to win in the meantime. And that's where the patience comes in. Mm. It's like, I didn't, I didn't, I, I, I've said this before, but I didn't know if I was going to win, but I did know I wasn't going to stop. And that was the only thing that I felt okay committing to. Because when we talk about fuel, it was like, well, when it got back down to it, the, the wall that my back was against was going home a failure. And to me, I would have rather died. And so that was it. So like, I, I love this quote, which is, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you have no choice. Mm. And so I like, and this is a really visceral example, but I'm going to use it for the sake of being visceral. Slavery has happened for thousands of years. We think about it in America with our American slavery, but slavery has existed everywhere, right? Thousands of years. 
Slaves work all day, every day. And some, and the idea of being a slave right now for many people who are free is in, incomprehensible, right? And so I remember, as twisted as this is, maybe I started thinking this when I was younger, is that I would be in this gym alone, not having slept for a long time, doing all the jobs and being like, this is horrible. And then I would think, well, being a slave and being whipped every single day and not being compensated and having sunburned everything with everything chapped and peeling constantly. And the only respite that I would have would be a meal at the end of the day. And then eventually maybe a day off once a month. And then eventually I have the good grace of dying. And yet those slaves continued to work. And I was like, how are they able to do that? They would do it because they had no choice. The choice was death or work. So they worked. And so when I thought about it like that within the context of the gym, I was like, for me, I wasn't in an extreme scenario like that. But it felt that way. Because to me, the idea of going home a failure might as well have been death. It had to do with your dad too, right? Of course. Yeah. And all the people that, you know, and all the people real and fake in my mind that were speaking against me. And, and I still probably have this issue is that like, I will fabricate other people talking shit about me who aren't even thinking about me. (laughs) Right. And so in that time though, I had gone from what would be considered a high status setup. You know, I'd been doing everything right. No, like my dad could brag about me at the cocktail parties and I could see guys at the reunion and be like, oh yeah, I've got a good consulting job. Like I've got a 401k, whatever, right? And going from that to this setup, I was already, I'd already swallowed the pill of looking foolish. Like why would I leave my white collar job to be a personal trainer? And I don't say that as an insult to personal training. I just say that in the general rung of status, white collar management consultant is perceived as higher than personal trainer. And so I had swallowed that pill once and I was like, I'm not swallowing it again. Like I will not go down a rung and then fail. And so it was just like, there wasn't an option. Like I, if I, if the, if the gym had gone, if I somehow wouldn't have figured it out, I wouldn't have told anyone. I would have just kept working and found a way. And I've already told my plan B before, but like my plan B in my head, which allowed me to do this was that I was going to drive Uber and I would strip. That's what I would have done because I knew that if I lived on, you know, a thousand dollars a month and I made another 150 the next year, if I did driving Uber and I stripped at night, then I could start over again. And I would have done that cycle as many times as it took until I won. And so like the thing that I could commit to is that I, my actions were under my control. And that was the only, like, I didn't know if I was going to win. And honestly, there was many times where it didn't look like I was. But the only thing I could, I could commit to was like, okay, well, slaves continue to work and so can I. Take me through those voices that you make up in your head currently. Oh, I mean, they're, they're like what I would call fake enemies. You know what I mean? Like they're not, they're not real. I know they're not real, but sometimes it's just, it just, it just gets the juices going. Like what? Um, and I'll tell you this, a lot of times it's uh, like some of my content, like my more spirited content comes from me seeing someone post something and then I'm like, this is such horseshit. And then I just go off on basically that person, but I'm doing it to a camera and anonymizing it. Um, but I think, I think I, 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 I resent the passion thing, not long-term, but in the short term for people who are starting. And I think that's because it sets too high of a bar. 
I understand the intention behind it. And I think the intention is pure and I think the intention is right. But I think the execution of that is where people fall short is that they wait for something that they're going to fall in love with. And you don't fall in love with things unless you're good. And you only get good at things if you suck first. And so I think it's really about like lots of action, even if it's disjointed until you're like, oh, I have seen some progress on this. I will do more of it. And then all of a sudden you get good at whatever the thing is and then you like it and then you find your passion. But you didn't find your passion, you created it. And you created it through excellence and through finding ways to consistently win over time. And so I think if we lowered the bar for a lot of people who are starting out, like they, it's kind of it's kind of the same thing with like romantic partners right now for a lot of younger younger people. It's like you have the paradox of choice is that there's so many fish in the sea. There's so many swipe rights. There's so many opportunities to meet girls or meet guys that you're looking for this perfect key or this perfect lock that's going to like unlock all the, the amazing romantic thing that, and it's just not like that. And I think that you could probably look at careers the same way. And so people haven't connected, like there's some element of people who are like, okay, marriage isn't perfect and there is no perfect partner. Well, there's also no perfect career. And so it's like everything has overhead and that's a basis quote. Like everything has elements that you don't want. And I think the expectation that everything is going to work out makes it so that nothing does for most people. Wow. I needed to hear that so, so much. Thank you for, for laying that out. What do you think the... What do you think the modern day version of the cigarette is? The thing that we accept as normal currently, but that the rest of in 50 years will look back and be like, how are we so dumb to do this thing? I think, um, I think brain meds uh, are like, we have no idea what's going on in the brain. And so like we take, you know, it's kind of like electroshock therapy of like 50 years ago. We're like, I can't believe we did that. Or like lobotomies. You know what I mean? Like, I can't believe we used to do that. Um, and I think a lot of the the psych drugs that people put kids on really early um, is tough. I think there are, there are, there are the problem with this stuff, uh, there's part of me that even hates that I got into it. But like, there, wherever there's a need, there's always a 10 times bigger amount of abuse. Of, 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 a, of a solution, right? And so it's kind of like workers' comp. Charlie Munger talks about this, but it's like, it is absolutely wrong that someone should work and get injured on the job and not be compensated by the company that they, that they were doing work rightfully so for, right? The problem is, how do, you, how do you manage that when there's no way to hold people accountable? And so what happens is you actually sacrifice the system for a select few, And so I tend to be a global optimizer, but a local minimizer. What that means is like, I'm willing to sacrifice the small, I'm willing to sacrifice the pawn for the game. And society is not willing to sacrifice the pawn for the game because the pawn is a headline. And that's the problem with how, how media, I'm not even getting into that, but like that's, that's, what, that's what makes it hard. And that's why it's very, it's, it's hard for sometimes cultures to move forward. But I think most people on a common sense level would rather have the whole benefit, but they cannot make the decision in the short term. And so like total side note on this. If you want an amazing razor for prediction, predicting people's behavior, just look at what will reward them the fastest. And you can, with variable certainty, guess what people and groups of people will do. Mm-hmm. Should we print more money or should we reel things back? Well, short term, this one's better. That's what we'll do. 
It's, it's, it's near impossible. It's hard for one person to do it for themselves. It's almost impossible for a group. And so groups will always optimize for the short term until eventually they run out and another group wins. It almost seems like there's a heaviness within you when you're speaking about it. Is that accurate? Because your your yeah. mood and complexion change completely. Yeah, I, just, I I don't like getting into this because it's it's it it gets off the the beaten path of. It's just a bummer, and I I would get more into it, but I don't like getting into the politics around things. That's I've never been I've never been in it um, ever. I've like just never gotten involved. I I because I try to play games that I have variables that I have control over. And so um, I got this from my dad, actually. But he said, I only play games if I know I'm going to win. And people might take that and take a lot of different things from it. But I'll tell you what he meant by that. Was that he wanted to do all the preparation and have all the unfair advantages he possibly could before taking the first step into a game. And I would say that that's probably the biggest difference between people who are big time winners and everyone else is that like, once you learn the rules of the game, then you learn how to stack the deck and you can do it ethically and you can do it legally, right? Like easy way to stack the deck, wait longer than your competition, right? Like you can, you can come in with unfair advantages simply by measuring success on different time horizons or measuring a different metric for success, right? Like right now, what am I optimizing for? I'm optimizing for brand. I'm not optimizing for money. Right. So I'm measuring something different than somebody else might be. And so someone who maybe made, started making content at the same time as me might be making more money than me today. But are they winning? I don't know. We're playing different games. Right. And so I think that that lens uh, can be used by most people. And most people don't do that because they don't even know the rules that they're of the game that they're trying to play. And so they are pawns in someone else's game. And so I think that's where the, the heaviness of this whole thing comes from for me is that like, I hate not feeling like I have an element of control over the outcomes in my life. And a lot of the stuff that's happening in the world, I don't feel like I have control over and that annoys me. And so I focus on the few things that are controllable for me and I direct all of my attention there. Makes a lot of sense. I, I've also taken a similar approach and then I'll hear from loved ones or you should be paying attention to the news. You should. And, and it's like, well, I mean, I'm going to control the things that I, I'm going to control. And, and part of me is like, maybe when I'm that age and I can impact it more, I will. But in this moment, I can't. Is that a similar approach you take as well? Yeah. 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 I, 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 um, the question always comes down to what am I going to do? Right. And so if the input, like, I consume all this media, right? I get quote educated, which getting, not even getting into like where you get sources of information, which conflict. And it's a tough, it's tough for anybody right now, like to even know what an informed decision is, right? Cause no one actually can touch the situation anymore. Everything's th- it's, it's banana phone times a hundred right right now across all media. So it's really hard to have an informed decision. And so for me, and I, I, I really thought about this and I was like, the reason I actually haven't, I voted one time in my life. The reason that it's so tough is that if I'm going to vote, I would like to be an informed voter. In order for me to be informed voter, people are like, it only takes 10 minutes. I'm like, if you're an idiot, 
It, it only takes 10 minutes to literally click the buttons. It takes weeks to be informed about what buttons you're pressing. And so for me, that's where the time trade-off has not been good. And this isn't me saying I'm an advocate for not voting. I'm an advocate for being informed. But the cost of being informed relative to the amount of change I can make with my vote is relatively small. And so for me, I look at the opportunity cost of that time. And could I, with that same time, more positively impact my life than what my one vote will impact my life through? And for me, the answer is yes. And so then I choose not to. And so I am uninformed, which is why I try not to give a, a political opinion, because that's exactly what they would be, opinions. I have no idea. So it, it's the same as me making up answers, because I don't know. So I try to talk about only the few things that I feel relatively confident that I know about. I had a DM the other day who was like, I watched one of your videos and you said, um, you don't know how to get to nine figures a month. And so I wanted to tell you, mind you, the only person who's going to say this is not someone doing nine figures a month, but we'll leave it aside. The point is, is that I will only talk about getting to eight figures a month because I have been there. And so I know what it takes to get there. And I said, once I get to nine figures a month, I will tell you that. Not that I don't have a map or a roadmap of how I plan to get there, but I won't talk about it until I've walked it. And so like right now, I don't feel like I could walk any political discussion because I would get trounced by anybody who's more educated than me. And I'd be like, you're probably right. I don't know. And then I would be like, why am I here? I'd be like, oh, this is a game that I don't know the rules to. I'm going into a game that I don't have an advantage. I don't want to play. And so I play games that I know that I can win. Could you see yourself going into that realm after? I don't, not on any time horizon that I associate with the current identity that I have. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, so good. I love my life a lot. And so like, I don't like, I'm, I'm good. Like I like the path I'm on. I like what I'm doing. I like, I like the impact that, that, that we're making. I love, I love seeing the businesses that come in every day. I get stopped in the street from, you know, every day from multiple people being like, dude, I read your book. I quit my job and I'm doing a million dollars a year. And I'm like, that, that might not have happened if I hadn't taken the extra 20 hours on that one page. It's true. And my editor said this to me and it's been like, it's, it's haunted me to a degree when we were, when things would get hard, right. In the editing process, like there are times where we, you know, I mean, we're, the closest of friends, but we would really argue viciously over point because we wanted to get to the truth. We wanted to get to the bottom of it. And he was like, Alex, he's like, there's a 16 year old kid who's going to sleep with this book under his pillow. He's like, yo, it's him, man. And I was like, fuck, he's right. He's right. So let's keep, let's, let's keep working through it. Let's make it simpler. Let's not cut the corner. Like, let's explain it. Let's define the term. Let's make a visual, you know, even though it's going to take me another five fucking hours. Like I didn't, you know, like it's, it's, that's the hard part, you know, and, and I, and it was during the writing process that I tweeted this tweet that went pretty, whatever, got a lot of lift. It was, um, whenever I, whenever I like, it gets really hard and I just think to myself, like, why am I even bothering? Why should it, why should I even keep doing this? I just remind myself that this is where most people stop and this is why they don't win. And so that's, that's a quote that has helped me get through some of those like really tough times it's like, well, do I want to win more than I want to fail? Yes. It's like, well, then this is a Trevor quote. who's my, my editor and my closest friend. He said, well, whenever someone says they can't stand it anymore, he said, well, if you're alive, you have proof that you can stand it. And if you die, you won't have to stand it anymore. So you can always stand it. And I think that's a really 
powerful message. It's really simple. But like if you are going through it, then you are going through it. You may be uncomfortable. It may be painful. You may hate it. But you're still here. And I think like to me, it reminds me of this, uh, the Morpheus quote. I think it was in one of the matrixes. And he says, I stand here truthfully and afraid, not but because of the path that lies before me, but because of the path that lies behind me. And so I think that that's like the gift that we all have is like we all have stood life to this point. And I think that's like all the proof you need that you can keep standing. it, Or just sit down and then get back up for a second. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I would love to talk to you about a couple of your tweets here. I have a bunch listed, but yeah. They're, they're so good. And your writing is, is like, it's really one of your gifts or, or one of the things that you've built to be amazing at it. So really just want to give you that acknowledgement. Um, oddly effective. Had a coaching call with myself. I typed up a chat conversation with some problems I was having and pretended to be my 85-year-old self. I got some really insightful replies. Worth a try. After all, no one cares about younger you as much as older you thought that was really cool, impactful, and a practice that anyone can do. I'd love to learn about, uh, are there specific prompts, questions, things you say to yourself that that make for the best conversation? This is the perfect question. Well done. So this is something that I learned about later that stems from a psychological concept called the Solomon Paradox. And so the Solomon paradox, if you don't know who anyone's listening, is there was King Solomon who was known for being wise and he had, he was one of the richest men of all time, et cetera. And so people, kings, rulers would come to him and ask for his advice. The reason that it's a paradox is that he gave exceptional advice to everyone else, but his actual life was in ruins. His, he, you know, his son was, was, you know, a terrible son and he had many wives and he cheated and he had this lust for money and all these things, but his advice to other people was amazing. And so the Solomon paradox, and it's been studied in multiple facets, that people give better advice than they follow themselves. And so they've studied this with relationships. They'll have somebody in a weird uh, romantic relationship, tough, tough setup, and they'll whitewash the names and say, hey, there's a lady and she's getting beat by her husband once a month. And it's happened for four years. And this time she says that her husband says that it's not going to happen again. What do you think that that woman should do? And then the person would give advice and it completely conflicts with how that woman actually lives her life, even though she's giving advice to somebody who's not her. Right. And they have postulated why this is. Now you could say you've removed the emotions from it. You've removed the, the tensions, whatever you want to say. But what we do know is that people give better advice than they follow. And so if you pair that concept with the idea that no one has more context on your life than you do, then you have a very powerful combo. And so one of the issues that I've had with like therapists and performance coaches and things like that is that I've done a hand, I would say maybe I've spent like five, maybe 10 hours in total in a setting like that. I'm not very good at it. Um, And it's because I usually feel like I'm spending the majority of my time trying to give them enough context in order to give me advice. Right. But they don't know every one of my skill sets. They don't know every one of my backgrounds. They don't know the, how that business deal, like he kind of looked a little dodgy, but I didn't have time to give more context to it so that they could give me the advice. Right. And so I have failed at most of those things. And so when I tried this experiment, it was because I was actually really stressed about a decision. And so I 
said, okay, and this has been a mental practice of mine was just talking to my 85 year old self, but I was like, let me formalize this a little bit. And I'm actually going to write it out in a document. And so I, I started talking to my future self and it was kind of interesting is, um, it, I could hear myself laughing at myself. So like, I'm like, this thing isn't happening fast enough. Like, I don't know what's going on. And then I'd be like, what did you expect? You're trying to build a billion dollar thing in what a year. And then I'm like, well, I mean, no. And I'm like, well, what's the objective? And I'm asking the same questions I would ask a portfolio company or CEO, right? Or whatever. And I'm now getting coached by me. And some people might take that as like wildly egotistical, which hopefully they don't. But the other side of it is that like this person has two things that no therapist has. They have complete context on my situation and they have completely aligned incentives. And there's no one else in the entire world who has that. And I would argue that most people know what they should do. They just don't do it. So I'll relate this back to weight loss sales way back in the day. I'd sit across the table from Sandy and she'd be like, I don't know what to do. And I used to just like play into that. Be like, oh yeah, well, I'll help you to educate and all that stuff. And as I got more and more experience with sales, I'd be like, sure you do. And they would look at me because they didn't expect that. And I'd be like, what do you mean? And that's also, it breaks the frame. And all of a sudden you actually get their attention. But I would say that and, and they'd look at me cross-eyed and I'd be like, if you had to lose weight, what would you do? And they'd be like, well, I'd probably like, I'd work out more. I'm like, okay. I was like, what else would you do? And they're like, I'd probably eat a little better. I'm like, okay. I was like, pretty much got it. I was like, but that's not the issue, is it? And they're like, well, no. I was like, it's that you're not doing it. She's like, yeah. And I was like, I can help you with that. And so the issue is that a lot of times we think that we like, that we have a knowledge gap, but a lot of times it's not that we have a knowledge gap. We just need someone else to hold us accountable. And so the ultimate gift that I think you can give yourself in life is holding yourself accountable. Like if you can do that, if you can really hold yourself accountable, you can do anything. And so sometimes it's really hard to hold yourself accountable. And so I'm just asking my 85 year old self to hold me accountable (laughs) to what I say I want. Right. Because even the flip side, and I said, there's two things, there's the knowledge and then there's the incentive, right? Somebody might be able to help you out, but their incentives aren't aligned. So as terrible as what I'm about to say may sound, there are therapists that I think are very good and, and really help people. But there are also therapists that are human and have bills to pay and have and have families and they look at their business like a business and have a recurring revenue stream and say, like, if I solve your problem, you won't leave. And so you come here and you vent to me and I say, let's do the same same time next week. They're not trying to solve your problem. They're trying to make you feel better in the moment, but not solve it long term. And so I want someone who has complete context completely aligned incentives. And there's only one person who has that and that's me. And so the question is like, how can I give me advice? It's like, well, me giving me advice isn't working. So I need old me to give advice who has 85 years of context. And the nice thing is, is that most of the time he just laughs at me and makes fun of me and tells me that none of this is going to matter. And so it's been a very nice razor for focusing on the few things that do. And so when I am stressed or I have a big business decision, I also know that I don't have to educate a therapist or a coach on at least my level of business acumen to get good advice. Right. And so that has been what I've called the Solomon project. And so I have a recurring, I have a recurring calendar meetup with myself for an hour on Mondays. It's the first thing I do. And I have a back and forth dialogue with 85 year old me. And I, I mean, it's a dialogue. It's just like a chat. And so I chat to me and then I click enter and then I chat back and I do the whole thing. Like I, it, like it's, and I'm like, well, dot, dot, dot. And I'm like, what dot, dot, dot. And it's like, well, you kind of know. And I'm like, what do you mean? You know, like I have the whole thing. 
Um, but I can't tell you, it's been one of the most rewarding experiences that I've been through because like I, old me has absolute grace for young me and old me appreciates the sacrifice that young me right now is putting in for old him. And it's like, I wouldn't be living the life I have if you weren't doing what you're doing right now. So thank you. And it like, it hits because like, there aren't many people who thank you for doing what you do. But like, there's no one that it benefits more than you, right? But actually to be thanked by, it's very weird. It's very meta, but like, it's been a really powerful experience for me. And I think from a mental health or anxiety or long-term planning perspective, it's allowed me to pump the brakes on reactivity in my life, whether it's with relationships or business decisions and be able to just be wiser if we call it that, but really just, you know, most of wisdom is just thinking over a longer time horizon. And so it's like, might as well talk to the guy at the end and see what I should do today. Mm. And that this is through a Google doc or just a, a yeah, chat. Just a, yeah. just a Google doc. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just click enter. Yeah. It's, like, it's, it's, it's <laughs> simple. I mean, it's, I can tell who's talking. <laughs> like I know who's, whose turn it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I love it's, it. It's, it's yeah. really powerful. I'm going to do that right after this. Um, and I, I got to get another tweet with you while we're here. Um, in a similar vein. Advice to my younger self, document your life more. Otherwise, you'll forget the details. And the details yeah. are what make it worth remembering. It's powerful. I always tell my friends, we got we to gotta take more pictures, more videos. Whatever the amount that you take, it's not enough. Like, always yeah. take more. Not because you want to show anybody, but just because when I have those from the years past, I'm always so grateful I do. So... What role has that played in your life and how do you, have you done that? Well, I was notorious for not documenting anything for most of my life. And I think I have a different tweet that says the biggest regret I have is not documenting the failures. Mm-hmm. It's like not documenting the low points because everyone wants to document the success story. But the only way you have a success story is if you show where you came from and where you came from is the shitty part. And so like I did 30 something launches of gyms. I only made one recording and it's like two minutes. And that one recording made me like $10 million because I ran it as an ad. Wow. Imagine if I had 30 other ones. But it was me in some random gym being like, look at this random gym I'm in in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) And I'm like, isn't this weird? I was like, I just sold 200 people into this thing. Look at the stack of contracts. And I was actually not making it as an ad. I was sending it to a group that I had just joined to try and show that I was cool. They're like, they were all these internet people. And I was like, I do cool stuff too. You know, I was like, "I, I, I do stuff. Look, look at those contracts. It was me flexing to a group. It wasn't even an ad. And then I ran it as an ad and then it murdered. Like people in the gym world are like, I remember that ad, right? Because it was so crazy because it was real. And so I think that the biggest mistake that I made from a marketing perspective, maybe in a life perspective, biggest is strong. One of the mistakes I made um, is that I didn't document the low points. And so like I have a screenshot in my first book. That's my, when I had a thousand dollars in my bank account. Um, and for the audience who's listening, the thousand dollars, my bank account for me, um, I had had, you know, six locations before that. So going from six gyms to a thousand dollars in a matter of like 90 days was very hard for me. And, but it was hard enough that I do remember screenshotting it and being like, fucking remember this, like, don't make this mistake again. And it was a little bit of like, at the time, like self punishment of being like, you will not forget this, but as I've gained a little bit more grace to my younger self, 
I have those screenshots and I, I've used that one screenshot of a thousand dollars in my bank account, probably more than any, any screenshot I've had from my past. And I've used the, I took one picture of me sleeping on the floor at the gym one. And I just sent it to my dad being like first night here, you know, and I'm so grateful that I took the picture because if I hadn't, I would, and I have so many other crazy things that happened that I have no documentation of it. And so it's easy to say, Hey, document. But the thing is, is that documenting is a local cost for a global benefit. Mm -hmm. It costs you now, but it benefits you long-term, which is why most people don't do it. And so what I've tried to do with what we've, or how we've oriented our life is that I give myself local benefit and global benefit. Mm -hmm. So I get fast feedback loops for documenting what we do now. And so we document everything, but I also get really fast feedback because I post it. Now, the problem is if you're not posting things, then you have no feedback cycle for remembering them, especially if they're tough. Mm. And so I think that one of the, one of the, the genius concepts of capture, don't create, et cetera, is that it actually gives you a feedback loop on something that otherwise has no benefit. Because in the moment you remember it, it just happened. In, so, in some ways you're trying to forget it. Yeah. Right. But like when you think about the human experience, when I think about my 85 year old self, like what makes the human experience in its entirety, the human experience is the highs and the lows. Mm -hmm. And so like there was a, we were talking about frames of mind for like getting through hard things earlier, but I'll give you another one, which is there was a guy, um, friend of a friend, successful entrepreneur, and he got really bad cancer, like super bad, really, really fast. Right. And I think he lost his like trachea and some other stuff. And like, they thought he was going to die. He ended up making it. Um, and, uh, and he was telling my friend, he was like, man, so grateful. And it was like about, you think it was like the whole, I see life a different way now. It wasn't that it was while he was going through it. And his reasoning was how cool is it that I get to live this part of the human experience? He's like, so many people don't get to live this. Like I get to know what it's like to have cancer. Like so many people live their whole lives and then die not knowing what cancer was like. I get to know that. And I just thought about that as like a very interesting frame. It's like whether it's bankruptcy, going to jail, like even the depths of human suffering and some people who are still going through that trauma, I'm not saying that like, I'm not justifying it. It's just a frame on like being human is the rainy and the sunny days. Like you can't skip weather. And so I think like embracing the totality of the experience can give you gratitude for what feels locally like a low point. But most of the defining moments in our life broken leg, then he doesn't have to go to war, right? When you expand the time horizon, those are the things that create us. And so again, I mean, I talked to my 85 year old self a lot, which sounds really weird. Um, but whenever I'm like complaining about something, one of the common things he'll ask me back is like, well, who do you want to be? Hmm. And I'll be like, well, I want to be like this. And he's like, do you think that person would not go through hard times? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, it sounds like you're wishing for the outcome, but not willing to pay the price. He's like, are you willing to pay the price? And I'm like, well, yeah. He's like, well, this is what paying the price feels like. Mm. Embrace it. Because these will be the stories you tell. And so I think that's, that's given me the ability to weather rainy days, sunny days. Because like, there are a lot of those days in the entrepreneurial journey because that Rocky cutscene is five years, not 30 seconds. And so I think you need as many of those tools as you can possibly put together in your tool belt to just keep going. So, so beautifully said. I, I want to highlight too the part about sleeping in the basement and that sleeping in the gym 
and taking a picture of it. You post it on social media that day and it gets zero likes. You post it on social media today and it gets a million. And I think there's something interesting to that is like the more you build the story, the more the low points actually mean and the greater the, yeah, you have something I'll actually like give you a, I'll give you something that you probably didn't expect from me on this one. It's actually, I think it's a smiley face. Mm. So if you post it when you're going through it, people will respond saying, keep chasing your dreams, keep at it, et cetera. And then when you start succeeding, all of a sudden they won't do that. And then later they'll be like, it's cool that you came from that. But like when you're on the come up and I remember I wrote this, I wrote this essay and I'm, I've actually tried to find it. And it was because I, I, I liked creative writing. I had a creative writing scholarship back in the, like I didn't actually take that scholarship to bit. But anyways, point is I've liked writing for a long time. And I wrote this essay to myself because I'm a weirdo. Um, I said, everyone believes in the American dream until it comes true. And so that was like the heading. And it was, it was this weird observation that I had because like everyone was rooting for me when I was sleeping on the floor. So like in my head, I had back home everybody that I was running away from. But everyone in the local, like the people at my gym and stuff, they were like rooting for me. You know what I mean? They're like, good for you, chasing your dreams. Like, you know, you're, you're sleeping at the gym. Like, you're going to get it. You're going to make it, man. Right? But like nine months later, when I had like a team and I had a manager and like I wasn't at the gym every hour of every day, I was working from home sometimes because I got more done because it wouldn't, you know, disrupt me. Um, and I would show up to the gym or I'd show up to a second location and they'd be like, oh, big man, like, can't be too bothered by us. Like, don't forget us little people. Right. You know, all that stuff. And I remember being like, when did I, be? I was like, when did I go from the underdog to the man? Mm-hmm. As in like working for the man, which is a saying that Gen Z probably doesn't even know. But, um, I think that there's a quote that I think, uh, Chris Williamson said that I really, and he, I think he was quoting somebody. I don't remember what it was, but anyways, he, he said, People root for you on your way up because you remind them of their dreams. And they try to tear you down once you're there because you remind them that they gave up on them. Something. And I, I've lived that. And it's, it's weird because I think there's these cycles as you kind of gain an influence. It's kind of like the crab story, like in the beginning, like all the crabs try and pull the other crabs back into the bucket. So I think like, you start succeeding and people are like, good for you. That gives them hope. And then you start passing them. And it's like, everyone wants you to do well, just not better than them. Yeah. Right. And so then you start passing them by the objective measure, whatever you want to call it. And then they start cutting at you, right? Well, he cut corners. He's not ethical. He's, you know, they start making things up, whatever. Right. But then what happens is people who are not from your hometown start recognizing for who you are now. And they, they didn't see the path. They didn't see you suck in the beginning. They just see who you are now. And they're like, wow, this guy's great. He's provides so much value, whatever it is. Right. And I think there's a saying that Jesus, Jesus wasn't the Messiah in his hometown, right? Like the, the, it's counterintuitive, but you'd think that the place that someone was from is the place that they, that would root for him. But it was the last place that accepted him as Lord in the story. Right. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And so it's also, why I'm a big advocate of leaving. Mm. Like if you want to become a different person, then change your environment because the environment you have is reinforcing the person you used to be. It's it's so crazy. Six months ago, I know you probably you got to go soon, but six months ago, I moved to Austin and haven't had more growth personally and professionally in my own life because awesome. I moved to a different place. And then I go home and I notice the patterns again yeah. that I was once living with. So that's how life goes. But um, yeah. that's I, awesome. I, 
Yeah, thank you. I'd love to, I end these podcasts with a challenge. Ask the guests for a challenge of the audience to do something and take the action from the hour and a half we've spoke. Does the challenge come to mind? Mm -hmm. Define the input-output equation that gets you closer to where you want to go. And then 10x the input. So whatever your thing is, like if you're like, I want to be an editor, I want to be an agency owner, I want to be a whatever, whatever the thing is, the first thing you have to do is figure out the input-output equation, which is what do I have to do that will get me closer to where I want to go? Step one. If you can't define your input-output equation, then you need to define your input-output equation because otherwise you're working for no goal. Once you define that, then do 10 times more. This is the flyer story. Like you probably, you might be doing the right stuff. You might be working out, but you're working out five minutes a week and being like, I don't know why I'm not losing weight. It's like, you're not even close. You're like, no, I think I need to double it to 10 minutes a week. It's like, no, you're not even close. The thing is, is in fitness, we have some context, right? But in business, you have no idea. And that's the big disconnect is that people might be doing the wrong, the right stuff, but doing the wrong amount. They're doing way too little of it. And they think you, they think in doubles, not in orders of magnitude as in 10 X, a hundred X, but like the, like you want to make a hundred times more money than you are. You need a hundred times more input. Like, hold on. I'm going to hit this home real quick. Cause this is, this is, this is important. I have right now 10,000 times the input that I used to, used to have when I was running my gyms. I just have leverage on my input. And so, for example, I could do 200 cold calls a day. I could double that to get to 400, 400 cold calls a day. I could also do 200 cold calls a day to get someone to recruit for me. And then that person starts, sorry, I, I'm going to rewind real quick. So I could do 200 cold calls a day and get a certain amount of sales. The next level is I could go get somebody to do those 200 phone calls for me. And then I make the same amount of sales, but that don't do anything. More leverage. Another leverage above that is I go call, do 200 phone calls a day until I get a recruiter. And then that recruiter brings me a new person every week. And then every week I get another added 200 phone calls per day that keeps stacking and the number of customers that comes from that. But what did I do there? I made calls for a week to get one recruiter. And then from that point going forward, every single month, I get more and more sales. And so that's three levels of leverage. There are more than that. And so what you unlock in the game of entrepreneurship is leverage. And the way that you unlock leverage is through relinquishing control. And so the tough part about the entrepreneurial journey is that the thing that got you to quit your job is the very thing that you have to stop doing. And so what happened is you felt out of control. And so you quit your job so you could take complete control of your life. And when you're self-employed, you take complete control. You are, you hunt, you kill, you produce, you do everything, right? And then the thing that you got the big massive reward for, because you quit your job, you started making money, living life your own terms, you now have to unlearn that. And you have to say, now I'm going to give up control again. And then the rest of the journey is unlearning the control that you so hardcore were rewarded for in that first action. Because in the beginning, you have to give up doing production or doing delivery, right, on the back end. And then you have to give up doing admin work. And then you have to give up doing sales. And then you have to give up doing marketing. Then you have to give up doing management. Then you have to give up doing leadership. Then you have to give up doing financing. Then you have to do, like, you have to give up all these things until eventually you're like, but I'm not needed. And then you have to give up the desire to be needed by your business. Mm -hmm. 
Because many people make their business to, to fulfill personal desires. But the business doesn't need to do that. It doesn't exist for you. It exists for the customer. You're not required. You think you are because it makes you feel more important. And so that's the unlearning experience. And that's where leverage comes from. And so right now, to answer the question, the challenge for the people is figure out what the input-output equation is and do 10 times more. And if you can figure out how to do 10 times more, figure out how to do 100 times more. And the secret is that if you're trying to do 100 times more, it's probably not just you. Alex Hormozzi, thank you so much for being you. You are a world-class human being, and I'm so grateful for you. And the world is a better place because you're on it. And I, I truly mean that. You roll your eyes, but it means it comes from the bottom of my heart. I, I really mean that. Thank you. Thank you for being you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And we accomplished the mission. You asked great questions. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank I appreciate you. that. Where should we send people? $100 million oh. leads and at Hormozzi? Uh, well, it depends on when this comes out, but if the, uh, the, if this is before August 19th, then go to acquisition.com forward slash leads. Uh, you can register for the event. It's free. Put a million dollars into the event. We're going to be giving away insane stuff. I've got a secret project I've been working on for four years that I'm going to be releasing. Uh, I can't tell you what it is for everyone who's listening, but I can tell you that it's more than a gift card and less than a Tesla. And every single person in attendance is going to get one. All right, so it's it's going to be really cool, and I've been saving for a really long time to do this. Um, so if it's before August 19th, then go to acquisition.com forward slash leads. And guess what? If it's after August 19th, also go to acquisition.com forward slash leads, and it will redirect you to the book that got launched. <laughs> I cannot wait to read it. It'll come out before, but I'm sure people will be watching this interview many, many times in the future. Thank you so much for being you, and have a wonderful day, my man. You too, man. Appreciate you. <laughs> 